Okay, welcome, welcome. This is What's Left in Albany. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions with the underliners of community projects or organizations to discuss themselves and what they're doing. I also discuss local news and issues in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, opposing our neoliberal present and potential fascist futures, while promoting the build-out of a commons economy, delegated democracy, waging a clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance, as we can only hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for the city, we are going to find whatever's left. And edited intro there, and I am back with after a few weeks of interviews, back with my personal reading series of Corning's biography, particularly covering Albany's political machine, which was reigned here for 75 years and roughly shapes everything about our city today and can be argued still exists in a weakened or transformed or a little different form. What I left off, just to recap, uh, last time, was generally how you had Irish immigrants, or at least an immigrant family, who became their own uh, political boss of the South End, and the Corning family, which represent WASP, aristocratic, Protestant white people, rich industrialists, who built America, but also on the backs of working people and chattel slavery. And uh, and they kind of joined forces uh, and bond... Uh, first, uh, they joined forces for economically trite reasons of like, you know, it's, it's in their interest. They're helping each other out. One has the political organization and the sociability, uh, and the other has the money. And they bonded over cockfighting. Bloody, terrible cockfighting. But basically, that's what bond, they bonded together. And whether it was um, local judges or what have you, they all attended. And I left off kind of with a discussion of secret societies because cockfighting was illegal. And so it had, you had to be discreet about it. And that included everyone who was involved. And so there was a bit of trust built there, just like with kind of gangs or organized crime of any uh, nature. And you can say, oh, corporate power is also organized crime. And uh, political power, how its wealth is, is like organized crime. The Biden crime family, as uh, the right wing you say. And, and you can say the same thing about Trump as far as national presidential figures go. Let's see where I left off. So, just to recap, that the rules of working in a secret society 
and that includes the secret society of a political machine, is the rule of exclusivity, that membership was open to only the chosen few, those like yourself or those who at least act like you. The second rule was loyalty. You stick together, you help each other out, you do each other's, you know, you work with each other's interests. Um, There is unity, you pool resources together, so that's something like class consciousness. Rich people work with other rich people, bosses with other bosses. Fourth rule was confidentiality. You put up a wall of obfuscation, a wall that cannot be pierced by the best of journalism and the fourth estate or whatever else that's supposed to make democracy happen or viable. So as long as there is a secret society, though, can be argued from an anarchistic point of view that these secret societies helped build liberal democracy once upon a time in the shadow of kings. So so frequently, freedom-fighting groups are also like secret societies to overthrow the power of capital. Um, But that's just a little riff. So I'm going to go back into the reading. Erasmus Courting II was born into the secret society mindset, and he accepted the rules and conditions of membership as part of the natural order. So did the others. Political rewards through machine loyalty was a generational phenomenon, kind of like generational wealth, but real, almost an inheritance passed down from father to son in Albany. That was the case of Mayor Corning and dozens of others. The names of the mayor's close political associates during his 42 years so City Hall reign, are, like Horning himself, the sons and grandsons of the early members of the Democratic organization. Holt Harris, Herzog, Schleck, McArdle, Kinley, Corman, Joyce, Conway, etc., etc. Quote, family, family, family. That's what the organization is all about, and we keep it all in the family, says Judge Harl Corman. A brief Corman biography of this particular figure is illustrative of the birthright quality of the machine. Corman was born in 1916 and raised in the South End, which was O'Connell turf. He knew the O'Connells from the neighborhood growing up. Their families were friends. An uncle, Ed Corman, was an O'Connell alderman in the South End. Harold showed ambition by becoming the first lawyer in the family, which was one of those essential things about being, once you're, about being political. You're either a veteran, a lawyer, or both. Uncle Dan, as you know, this is Dan O'Connell, the political machine boss, marked him as a promising kid to watch. Corman landed a job with the FBI and left town in 1941 for five years, but returned to Albany and reaped the first of his political awards in 1947 when he was hired by the machine's district attorney, Julian Irway, a lifelong friend and fishing buddy of Mayor Corning. Corman worked as an assistant district attorney until Corning made him Cooperation Council, which is the city's lawyer, chief lawyer. Uh, this was in 1954. Machine had bigger rewards in store for the good agent, a comfortable bench. Corman rose from surrogate court judge to state supreme court to court of claims, where he retired as presiding judge in 1986. In retirement, he keeps pictures of the three patron saints on his wall, Dan O'Connell, Judge Francis Bergman, and Mayor Corn. Quote, Albany is a small town where you get, when you get down to it, Corman said. That's why we call it Smallbany. We all grew up together. Our families had associations going way back. See what I mean by family? It was the accepted order of things. The O'Connor Corning Machine was the third such political, urban political organization to control Albany. We're kind of back now into general history. Uh, in an unbroken succession dating back to the mid-19th century. 
So first is Caddy Hendrick, a Democratic boss who held power for nearly 20 years before being overturned by a Republican machine run by Barnes, who in turn was beaten by the O'Connell Corning machine. Not only did those on the inside of the exclusive club that was the machine accept its paternalistic structure, but so too did the general citizenry of Albany. At least this is accepted um, wisdom. Political scientists have shaken their heads in disbelief that the O'Connell Corning machine could stay in power for so long. But there are many dynamics, and even dare we say, and this is where we get into pseudoscience, genetic predispositions among Albanians toward accepting the machine's oligarchic rule. The first is what William Rowley, in his insightful history of Albany in the 1800s, termed a patroon psychology. So something of note, dear listener, is that most of these histories of Albany were written uh, before postmodern critical theory. So they're kind of, you know, eugenics and other types of ideas like that were spinning around in American intelligentsia up until the Holocaust happened in the 40s. So a lot of these histories may have been written, I don't know when, but if they were written before 1960, before the civil rights movement, they're going to have some bias and, and paint a certain picture. Maybe just not have that social history angle of it and just kind of look at the figures who had the most money, who was doing the stuff or says they were doing the right, the big stuff. So they come up with this term patroon psychology because originally Albany was founded in feudal in a, with a feudalistic economy with Dutch landowners called the patroons and they owned everything, the entire county. And anyone who settled in New York, upper New York, were basically paying twice. They were paying rent, and then they were paying taxes, even though they weren't the property owners. Figure that. Raleigh, a former Albany newspaper reporter, of course, also the person who wrote this book is also a former Albany reporter. They all seem to be, maybe. But he was also a SUNY Albany journalism professor. professor. Published Albany, Tale of Two Cities, 1820 to 1880, in 67, so that's what I mean, his PhD thesis in American history at Harvard. In his study, Rowley suggested that Albanians were trained over the course of generations to act as docile sheep beneath the firm, guiding hands of a succession of shepherds. Or at least that's the narrative of the ruling class. I'm not sure if it was the narrative of the flock, quote-unquote. Uh, with Albany's Dutch colonial settlers, the citizens shrunk under the powerful patroons and adopted an attitude of obsolescence. Or obedience. This pattern continued with the three-decade dominance of the Barnes Republican machine, without so much as a breather of independence. Barnes' rule was followed up by the 75 years of control by the O'Connell Corning machine. Now, I don't like this analysis. I think it puts everybody into kind of a passive role, or it assumes that, well, America is a perfect, a great, you know, liberal democracy, and where people's votes count, and they're, and they're counted fairly. We're not going to pay attention to the power that money plays or ownership structures, whether people have a right to vote or not, or how they can vote. Yeah, you know, we're going to ignore all that and just say, well, people just seem to be okay with how things work. How many people right now are okay with the way the government works and how it's structured or how voting happens? That's Half of people don't vote or more. And that's a way of saying... Look, we're not participating because this isn't our system. They're not even a player. They could be if they organized. That's another story. And that's not the story told in this book, as it's the story of one man. 
So, again, quote, the history of Albanians is like sheep, said Dick Patrick, who grew up in Oneana and came to Albany for a state job after graduating from Syracuse U. Corning hired Patrick away from the state in 66, and he's been city planner ever since. He's obviously not now. Although not a native, he spoke with authority as an embodiment of the syndrome. Quote, Albanians seem to be bred to be sheared. They have an inbred sense of being scared. They always expect the worst, I found. They're naturalist, naturally pessimistic, and it's easy to lead those kinds of people. I think I would just call that capitalist alienation and being one step below homeless, or one step above. And some people aren't. Examples of patron psychology abound. Apparently it didn't matter to the people of Albany that political boss Dan O'Connell had so served time in prison for running an illegal and fixed, by all accounts, baseball pool in the 20s. Well, of course, that's ancient history if you're people like my mother in the 50s, uh, born in the 50s. So it goes into that. I'm skipping it because it's really that's not important. The patroon psychology was only one factor in any attempt to deconstruct Albany's mythic political organization. Quite a pseudoscientific one, if you ask me. So we're going to move on. <laughs> Whatever slim thread of independence remained in the citizenry of Albany was co-opted by the machine. Dan O'Connell always said he wanted a thousand little jobs instead of a few big commissioner-level patronage positions. Everyone in Albany, it seemed, got a little slice of the patronage pie, or was related to somebody who did. There were all the old fellows raking leaves in the park, the lift operators running automatic elevators in City Hall, the surfeit of janitors in the city's buildings, the plethora of laborers on county road crews, the scores of clerical workers tucked away in forgotten cubbyhole offices, various agencies, Friedman in his book, The in Inheritance, Friedman is the name, man's name, in his book, The Inheritance, recounts what has come to be seen as a classic symbol of machine payroll, padding, and patronage corruption. So here's a factoid for you. Dan's Albany County Courthouse required 72 janitors for its six floors. Meanwhile, the Empire State Building, which has 102 floors, employs 60 janitors. One estimate put the number of full and part-time city and county jobs controlled by the machine at about 5,000. Perhaps as high as 15% of the county's entire adult workforce, testing to Dan's philosophy of spreading the patronage broadly. In William Kennedy's Grand View, which is a fictional book, a drama about Albany's democratic machine performed in the city in 1996, a character in the play asked political boss Pansy McCall, who is a thinly veiled Dan O'Connell, if he owned any property. Why, yes, we do. We own the city and the county. O'Connell's real-life patronage employees worked for prenumerous wages, meaning the word it just means the low wages poverty wages, but the number of jobs controlled by the machine was so exorbitant that many households were given more than one position, and the combined salaries offered a livable income. There were also perks to holding machine posts, too. Chances to moonlight, or opportunities to make a little extra money on the side. Freelancing came your way. Putting Hendrick's beer on tap at your tavern, that's the beer, um, that's the brewery that the O'Connell family owned putting it in your tavern and buying insurance coverage for your company from Mayor Corning's Albany Associates were only the two most obvious examples of implied reciprocity within the Albany machine. Those who weren't given a permanent position might receive seasonal employment, 
or the proverbial turkey or bin of coal or a few sawbucks to tide one over during lean times. Slapped into the palm personally by Dan or Erasmus. So it gets that personal touch. Makes me think, maybe all the bar owners that are annoyed with the city, maybe they'd be doing better if the city or um, someone in the city government owned a brewery or um, one of the many microbrews, like Druthers, let's say, and you you put you bought Druthers and served that in your bar, and then and then the city <laughs> treated you with respect as as the bar owners like would like. Continuing on. Money, it has been said, is the mother's milk of politics. Small denomination, sans receipt, was the invisible lubrication that greased the cogs of Albany's machine. All those rewards came from with strings attached, of course. This condition didn't even need to be voiced. It was all quid pro quo, tit for tat. It was an unspoken proviso, no matter how small the gift. Remember us come election time. Vote Roway. Democrats all the way. Still hear that today and see it on lit. If you didn't, a machine pox upon your house. There was an element of voodoo in the machine's tactics, too. Thus, the fear the fear comes in. For the sheep of Albany believe the machine knew how each person voted in the voting booth. The voodoo rumors included these. That there was a slightly different pitch to the clicking sound the Democratic and Republican candidate levers made. There's an elaborate system of mirrors or special peepholes cut in the ceiling. So it becomes a paranoia of panopticonism. You're always being watched, so you're always on your best behavior, or the right behavior. Hawk-eyed spies looked over your shoulder. There were a score of other voting intimidation legends attributed to the machine, yet never confirmed. But yes, the machine definitely bought votes. However, according to several reliable insiders, the machine's vaunted $5 vote was fact rather than fiction. Quote, yes, there were $5 votes. I saw my dad give out $5 bills on election day, says Ray Joyce Jr., born in 1923, whose father, Ray Joyce Sr., was a ward leader and crony of Dan's. One of Joyce's, that Ray Joyce's son, he's a current county legislator, FYI. Back in the 30s and 40s, when times were tough, that $5 meant a lot. My dad said he was given a sack of $5 bills equal to the number of votes they needed to buy to reach the ward leader's goal. Reverend Joshin Joseph Romano, a Catholic priest who had known Dan O'Connell for many years, remembered a pastoral visit to a shut-in, machine hack, and former public safety commissioner. This was just a couple of days before an election, and his bed was covered with stacks and stacks of those $5 bills. Piles of money, I'd say it was more than $10,000, right before the election, and he acted like it wasn't there. Not only did the Democrats buy votes, but they employed the time-honored Tammany tactic of voting early and often. One machine stooge boasted of voting more than three dozen times in a single election. So even with their rumored popularity, they were still always cheating. And if anyone tried to do, and this is through an anecdote via social media, uh, it's like, yes, I, uh, my father told me the story of he tried to do some election watching, and the cops threw him out, saying he was interfering with the election. Albany County's Republican chairman, Charles Wing, claimed to have found one man who had voted four times, as a dead man, a convict, an out-of-state resident, and apparently for good measure, as himself. To machine loyalists, those bound by the secret society code, mentioned before, such voting fraud became a kind of badge of honor. Slag that glamorized the corrupt practices grew up in North Albany, making this machine dance. 
Dan's boys took pride in making the machine dance to the tune of a dozen or more rapid-fire repeated yanks of the voting booth lever for their candidates. When it came to such fabled fraud, nobody made the machine dance better than Dan and Erastus and their famous organization. Next source. In his 1973 book, Albany's O'Connell Machine, which is in the Albany Public Library, there's two copies of it in the main branch. Hope to read it someday. Frank Robinson's documented in detail the specific abuses, corruptions, and underhanded methods for controlling the voters employed by the machine. We need not repeat his labors here, but in an interview, but I might, says Dan Platt, um, at a future date. Um, but in an interview 20 years after the publication of his iconoclastic volume, Robinson had lit- said little had changed in Albany. Quote, the average person living here wasn't shocked or outraged by what I uncovered because the machine had their hooks in almost everybody in some way or another. So Robinson, who does live in Albany, Pine Hills neighborhood, with his family, is an administrative law judge with the State Public Service Commission. Robinson was a Republican war leader, ran campaigns, and was a losing candidate himself for city court judge in the 70s, but has been less active politically in recent years. For context, again, this book was published in 97 or 96. Robinson spent years of research for his book, turned his interest in the machine from obsession to revulsion to acceptance. Quote, the Albany machine never resorted to physical violence like Tammany because they didn't have to. It started out so strongly with Hackett and had a free ride for decades and never needed severe methods of control. Machine isn't dead in the 1990s. It's just metamorphosized. People still believe in its power. A remarkable analysis of the urban political machine, perhaps the best behind-the-scenes explanation of its structure ever published, is Frank R. Kent's 1923 book, a very long time ago, whole, de- whole century now, this was published, The Great Game of Politics. Mayor Corning himself read Kent as a primer as a student at Groton and absorbed its penetrating insights. This is what this is an exact excerpt of that. The political machine makes for waste, extravagance, and inefficiency in the public service. It adds terribly to the taxpayer's burden. Its primary purpose is to get jobs, and in the pursuit of this is enormously swells the public payrolls. It breeds up a class of professionals who cost the country dear, and there is a long train of evil and undesirable things in its wake. But there is another side to the picture. In every community, its excesses are exactly equal to the tolerance of the people. They have always the power to smash the machine and clean house whenever they become sufficiently aroused to use it. They may have a good or a bad machine in exact proportion to the energy of their desire. But a machine they must have. It stands in all great cities as a buffer between ignorance and helplessness on the one side and the red tape of the government on the other hand. It helps the poor, it guides the ignorant, it rescues the unfortunate, lightens the penalty for the sinful, and straightens out the bewildered. Say the same thing of any autocrat. John McEnany, Corning protege, state assemblyman, and Democratic mayoral candidate in 1997, still with us, of course, summarized the machine's extraordinary control thus. He's something of, in any circle I'm in, professional one, He's always stated as like the, um, he's labeled as the city's historian, or he's like one of the main ones. Great political power is an empire of favors due, not called in. Once they're called in, they're no good. 
One of the machine's favorite tactics of that sort of mental manipulation was to jack up the tax assessment each time a person purchased a home or property in the city. The new homeowner would get a visit from the machine's committeeman, who said he could help them get the assessment lowered. If you voted Democratic out of gratitude, the machine seemed so omnipotent that Sheep of Albany believed this, went along with what they were told, and gave the helpful committeeman their allegiance. Quote, what people didn't understand is that you could go down the city hall and get the assessment reduced by yourself. This is from Robinson. When I bought a house in the early 70s, the committeeman came around and I said, go away. I was a Republican ward leader and still got my assessment lowered on my own without any hassle. It was all an illusion. The people of Albany lived under an assumed fear. And I think of this whenever anyone relates how, well, I like my council person. He did this favor. He talked to the person in the city and got my tree uh, trimmed, or he, he fixed this pot thing um, on my sidewalk. He addressed my concern. You could have done it yourself. You always have the power. Um, at least that's one way of looking at it. But those were the head games that the machine penetrated on the psyche of Albanians with its real and implied threats. Carrot and stick property tax assessment manipulation for political purposes. They only had to work their strong-arm tactics a few times to lay the groundwork for mental intimidation simply by suggestion. Because obviously they really don't have the ability to punish everybody, and that's usually how you overcome oppression. They can't kill or jail or all of us. They lay the groundwork. But demographics gave the machine even more solid footing. So here's like kind of materialist reason number three for like their longevity. Why does Albany have political machines? Our demographics do not change very quickly or at all, though that has been changing. But it gave them the solid footing for its entrenched power. Raleigh pointed out that 1885 was a pivotal year in Albany's ethnic history. The state census that year revealed that Albany had become almost one-half Irish Catholic, Many recent immigrants who arrived and dug the Erie Canal in the early 1800s, quote, it had become, in fact, two cities, one Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the other Irish Catholic. The Millers um, are my ancestors in this case. Raleigh wrote in his thesis, he added this when he wrote it. The striking thing about the development of Albany into two cities is not that they were so different, but that they were so alike. Both were aristocratic in their social structure, with a marked distinction between the aristocrats and the poor. Both aristocracies were conservative in their determination to preserve the power structure as it had been developed, and both were adept in winning the acquiescence of the working class and the poor. The two cities did not merely coexist, they accommodated. And in that accommodation, they laid the foundation for the modern oligarchic structure of Albany society. The Irish joined the Yankees in perpetuating the tradition of conservatism and aristocracy that had been started by the feudal Dutch. So it's important to understand that even though Albany kind of has this face as a progressive city, its underlying political structure and economy is actually very conservative. And it comes up on every bulletin board and posting online about any story in Albany Maybe it's a bunch of trolls and sock puppets, but 
there's always a, a host of actual residents who are pretty damn reactionary. And it comes up regardless, in my eyes, regardless of uh, religion, race, skin color, etc. The machine simply merged these two cities within Albany under one banner, and the bond was as strong as any of the forged steel manufactured at Corning's plant. That's where their money came from. As John Tiford, the Purdue political scientist, pointed out, there were other contributing factors at work for the Albany machine's longevity. First, the political culture of New York State, which had spawned Tammany Hall and New York City political machines. Dan O'Connell would have been lost in California, for example, which didn't have powerful ward bosses like New York. Second, Albany's demographics were stagnant. Population hovered between 100,000 and 130,000 between 1920 and 1995. The percentage of blacks in the city's population arose gradually from 2.5% in 1920 to 15% in 1980. It would have been harder for the machine to maintain its power if the population was less stable or if there was an influx of minorities demanding change. You know, not like Chicago or Detroit or other, large, other industrial cities. Surface level reading. Dan O'Connell wasn't worried about Latino vote. Third, Albany is a city of senior citizens, ranking seventh in the nation, at least in 1960, with nearly 20% of its population over the age of 65. Maybe I have to look at that again. The voting age of Albany's population is definitely gray. A lot of the people voting for Erastus Corning in 1981 were the same people who voted for him in 1941, Tiford said. And finally, the cult of personality, which was exuded by Dan and Erastus, was an unbeatable force. You couldn't script the movie any better, Tiford said. Erastus was the front man who looked good. He sounded good. He was tall. Uh, and came from a good background. Dan was happy to stay behind the scenes and run the show. Dan and Erastus, the be-all and end-all of the machine, it's Alpha and Omega. The relationship holds the key to what made the organization work so effectively for so long. During a political association that spanned one half century, built upon almost daily strategy sessions, Dan and Erasmus became as close as hand and glove, or opposite sides of the same coin. They've been caricatured by journalists who portrayed Dan as the rough-hewn, cigar-chomping ward boss and Erasmus as his urbane alter ego. Those who knew them both and watched the two men interact and operate their machine over the years said those popular notions were too simplistic. It was a bit more complex. And then it goes into his um, the history, because Erasmus Corning is much younger than Dan O'Connell, uh, at least, you know, because O'Connell was first elected to office as like a 20-year-old, like right after World War I. Very old man. But I'll keep going. O'Connell met Erasmus when he was a young boy, and Dan kept his eye on Erasmus as he grew up. He groomed him, so to speak. A bright lad with good breeding. Edwin's eldest child. Uh, the way he might watch a promising fighting cock with winning bloodlines. Erasmus was hardly in Albany at all between the ages of 12 and 22, away at Groton and then to Yale with summer spent in Maine. Uh, classic Yankee st uh, wasp stuff. Those were the years that the machine rose to power and solidified its block-by-block -block control of Albany. Even though it didn't actively participate in politics in his youth, Erasmus couldn't help but absorb an education in this. He seemed to be in his genes. Well, that's because he had former... Another Corning was mayor in the 19th century, and so it's, yeah, they were city leaders all, always. 
So in fact, Erasmus seemed to have no long time vision for himself. So then that's the other thing. He didn't really like have plans for himself. He's kind of a boring guy when it comes to, when it comes down to it, kind of, he was given a purpose, be the, be the city leader, but not really a leader. Just be the nice, be the nice face. In fact, Erasmus seemed to have no, no long time vision for himself of anything. Even in young adulthood, he was the wandering boy of his youth, roaming over numerous areas of interest without focusing on any single one in fashion similar to that with which he meandered through the hundreds of acres of woods at Corning Hill, south of Albany. You know, he's a rich, rich little boy. Uh, he collected stamps. Yeah, that's why I'm skipping this here. It's just like, don't care. It's not about the machine. It's just personal details, coloring. But they were, they were well read. Like Dan O'Connell would give nicknames to everybody based on, I think it was Dixon's works. Yeah, Dickens' works. But that's not important. In 1934, Dan was 49 years old, two years younger than Corning's father when he died. Then that's when he tapped Erasmus, who was 25. Those who were close to the two men politically and personally have likened their relationship to that of father and son. It should be noted that Dan and his wife, Letta, who died in 1963, never had their own children. Dan brought Erasmus into his family and into the machine, which were essentially one and the same. Corning didn't get to know Dan's oldest brother, Patrick Packy, who died in 33 and who had been leader of the First Ward. The guy to see the job about a job in the state legislature where he worked as a clerk in the Senate. Kind of amazing how you could just be a clerk in the Senate and like, oh yeah, I can get you a job. I'll get you a job. I like a friend like that. Isn't that why I have Sam Fine in here? Can he get me a job? He doesn't offer it. You couldn't help but like Solly, who was everybody's friend. And this is Solly, um, Dan O'Connell's brother. Also an attorney and a colorful street-level machine enforcer, as well as the CEO of its gambling operations. You couldn't help but like Solly, who was everybody's friend. This is from Charlie Torsh, born in 1911, lifelong Albanian, lawyer, lobbyist, and partaker of city's illegal pleasures. Quote, Albany was an open town back in Solly's day in the 30s and 40s, and we'd hang out in the horse rooms and taverns. Solly controlled the numbers in the horse rooms. He was a big-time gambler, too. We played a lot of cards and lost a lot of bets on the ponies right in Dan's saloon. The machine worked as a kind of political farm system, similar to that of Major League Baseball. You paid your dues and followed protocol and executed Dan's orders, and maybe one day you'd be called up to the show. Frank Cox, who came up through the ward ranks, was a printer at the Times Union. He finally had paid his dues to the point that Dan ran him for state assembly in 1959 to fill the remaining term of Mayor Corning's brother, Eddie. These are all perfectly competent and qualified people for representation, aren't they? Right, so Eddie, current assemblyman, <laughs> was in a coma from an auto accident because cars were, in fact, death traps back then. Of course, Cox won. Harry Luckix, a longtime printer at the Papal, recalled the back shop boys getting together at work to congratulate one of their own on becoming a state lawmaker. One printer piped up, Hey, Frankie, now that you're a big shot assemblyman, what do you got to do? Cox replied without missing a beat, Whatever they tell me. 
Lewix roared with laughter over the story the printers had retold a thousand times hunched over their typographical work in the back shop. Dan put Erasmus Corning in the State Assembly himself in 1936, promoted him to senator, and let him learn the political ropes. Just go from assembly to senator. Corning was a minority member as a Democrat and didn't have to do much, or didn't have much to do. But O'Connell watched and waited, wanting to see if the kid did what he was told or if he would screw up. And it kind of sounds like Obama's career. Dan's instruction of Erasmus involved more than political strategy. There was a time for drinking at Dan's saloon, for gambling with Sully, for the blood sport of cockfighting that brought the two families together. Those and other considerations contributed to the mayor's mother's opposition of her son entering Albany political machine, a pursuit she considered below her class and stressful enough, at least in her husband's case, which led to an early death. Erasmus was torn, trying to play the swell, even as he appeased his mother's concerns about class decorum and public appearances. Quote, Twice while I was a state senator, I went to cockfights with Dan, Corning told DeMare in 1981 in a profile in the Times Union. Quote, But he came to the conclusion once I was elected mayor that it was no longer suitable for a mayor, and he wouldn't take me there any longer. I guess that makes it sound like he liked it, but... I think it's more just he's such a follower. Just, he just, you know. Eventually, Dan's age, changing times, and shifting public opinion about what constituted cruelty to animals merged to bring about the demise of Albany's golden age of cockfighting. The last Maine I remember, Maine is a um, cockfighting meetup. Meet I remember anyone talking about was a big gathering of owners in Wikes Bear, Pennsylvania in the 60s. This is from Holt Harris, another judge. I didn't go, but Dan went with a group of local cockfighters, and I never heard anything more after that. Although cockfighting died out locally, it remained an active sport in New York City despite its outlaw status. New York Times article in 95 on cockfighting cited the arrests of 547 people and the seizure of 1,600 fighting roosters to date. The Times noted that cockfighters pay as much as 300 a month to stash their chickens on Avway farms upstate. Dan, a shrewd judge of character, back to the back to the game, had chosen well in Erasmus, whose temperament was not a fire with ambition. Trained in Gregorian Reserve, Grotenian, like Groton is like an, I guess a finishing school of the type from Catcher in the Rye kind of type. As well as deference to his father, Erasmus would do what he was told politically, would be willing to wait in the wings with unusual patience. Most importantly, Erasmus was a man who accepted the scriptures of the secret society, various prenuptions of which he had belonged to since Wolf's Head. That's like the secret society at Groton or something like that. Or maybe Yale, because he went to Yale too, just like the Bushes. They were discussing the management of... Yeah, one of the rare personal letters from Corning to Dan O'Connell was written by the mayor, and that's, and that's another thing about secret societies, right? No paper trail. Don't write letters to each other. Just mean person. Always mean person. The quotation that appealed to me from this, uh, they were discussing the management of New York Central Railroad. This is in 19... Founded by Corning's great-grandfather. Dear Dan, Corning wrote, the quotation that appealed to me was the following sentence, quote, One of the first things I learned is that a man in politics has only his word to sell. The quote is from Tammany, Tammany Hall operative Jim Farley. In Erasmus, Dan found his perfect political prodigy. Perfect political prodigy. His understudy as the political 
you know, as an understudy, as a political boss. But that's the thing about, like, if everyone below you is a follower, do you really expect the first next person to take over from you, to run it like you, to, to be a leader? They're going to be a follower. Who are they following after that? Themselves? They can't follow themselves. They're going to follow money? Capitalism? Maybe someone higher up in the state? The feeling was mutual. Dan and Erasmus just seemed to fit together, said Martin Schleck. They greatly admired each other. O'Connell's family friend, John Tiferetti, con concurred, recalling being at Dan's house on Whitehall Road with the two men. And when the mayor left, Dan frequently turned to Tiferetti and said, There goes the best mayor the city of Albany ever had and ever will have. Even their political rival, Albany County GOP Chief Joseph Fregagel, had to concede Dan and Erasmus made beautiful political music together. He said in 1974, Erasmus, uh, Erasmus Corning is an expert second fiddler to the world's, to the oldest one-man band in America. He has played his fiddle on Whitehall Road for so many years that even Jack Benny took lessons from him. This millennial does not get that reference. But I could look it up. There was a sense of belonging in being Dan's boy that brought comfort to Erasmus Corning II, innately shy, a loner by disposition, considered by his closest friends as distant and aloof. And that to his kids, too. Among Mayor Corning's extensive collection and memorabilia, don't care. Despite the stereotypes about Dan's coarse style and gutter-level qualities, those who knew him well say his private interest... Oh, no, no, okay, and then it goes on how he's like a Civil War buff, and he can, like, quote... Uh, Confederate generals by rote. <laughs> Dan also had cronies and friends like Teferetti who engaged the boss in conversations about sports to vary his diet in politics. Okay, don't care. The machine was such a seamless apparatus of raw political power because it reached down through past generations, and each new crop of loyalists, like Erasmus, was groomed within machine families who had been raised in the system. Such was the case with Ray Kinley Jr., born in 1944, whom Corning made election commissioner. Kinley was Corning's golf caddy at Schuyler Meadows as a boy. His father, Ray Kinley Sr., was drafted into the Army the same time as Corning and was part of the mayor's reunion group. The senior, uh, Kinley, was, by the way, uh, Corning like spent a year and a half, you know, the standard uh, service length uh, at the end of World War II. And this was on the advisement of Dan. So he said, like, you're a lawyer, but you're not a veteran. Go be a veteran. Uh, go serve your country. Even though he was already mayor at the time. So he was the GI mayor. Uh, Dan knew the people. He never lost touch while... Okay, no, no, sorry, I skipped ahead. So this is about the Kinleys here. Another, another loyal family. Um, the senior Kinley was the mayor's golfing buddy and political salt consultant to Corning. So I guess that's how he became the golf caddy. They were already golfing together as like, you know, if the dad's dad's golfing with the with the guy, um, he's going to be recruited as a caddy at the club. The senior Kinley was the mayor's golfing buddy and a political consultant Corning who went on to become a senior vice president in Corning's bank, State Bank of Albany. So yes, Corning had the main insurance company and his own bank. Kinley's grandfather, Dan Kinley, was a machine lieutenant, and Dan made him operator of the water filtration plant. I'm sure he was qualified for that. His grandmother, Nellie, uh, Nellie Kinley, was given a job processing traffic tickets at City Hall. 
They worked so well together because they had complementary talents, McKinley said of Dan and Rasmus. Dan knew the people. He never lost touch with the little people. He would uh, respond to every letter, take every call, because it's not like he was doing real managing. He never lost touch with the little people. Erasmus was a wizard at math, and he knew the election numbers like nobody I had ever seen. They instilled loyalty and rewarded those who were loyal and took any rewards from those who weren't. Martin Steck, a fellow Yaley, two years behind Corning at New Haven, had several deep ties with the Corning and O'Connell. After law school, Steck was hired by, the, by Ed O'Connell and Owitz Law Firm, where his dad practiced. Dan wanted Martin to follow in his dad's footsteps and made Snack a judge, where he spent 26 years on the bench. Of course. His father, Gilbert Schneck, Schneck, I'm probably saying that wrong, was a, a decorated World War II combat veteran, a close friend of Dan's, and a football teammate of Ed's at Union College. So it's a flurry of names here and relationships to towards through, but let's just say they're all thick as thieves. Despite his Ivy League education, Martin received a continuing education from Dan. Quote, even though Dan didn't get past the fifth grade, this is the party boss, uh, he was amazingly well-read and had a large library. This is where it goes into his, his Civil War buff guy. He maintained a clear line between personal friendship and political business, oh, of course. Okay, okay, no, no, this is good. He maintained a clear line, however, and always chose politics if the two clashed. Uh, Schnenek learned this rule following a falling out with Dan when Schnenek requested early retirement from the bench in 1972 when he turned 60. Uh, Schnenek was burned out after 26 years as a city and county court judge, but Dan wanted him to run again. You turned down Dan at your own peril. I'd had enough of the bench and told Dan I wouldn't run again, and I got a harangue from Dan like no other I'd ever heard from him. Things were never the same between Dan and me after that. That's the way the game was played in Albany machine politics. The price you paid to remain king of the mountain, a lesson Dan repeatedly drove home to a willing Erasmus. Quote, Erasmus was a lonely man deep down, and so was Dan, Holt Harris said. One of the political axioms Dan mentioned often was this. If you can't have a friend in politics, either you have to turn him down or you do him a favor that could get you both in trouble. Holt Harris also was taught, about Dan's high-bound ways and demand for absolute loyalty. Hull Harris was ecstatic when Governor Harriman, of Harriman Office Campus, personally selected Holt Harris and offered him the position of counsel for a new state authority Harriman was establishing to develop an Olympic-caliber state-run ski center at Whiteface Mountain. Holt Harris went to see Erasmus. Erasmus said that they had to go see Dan, boss Asked Holt Harris if he wanted the job, and the answer was yes. Of course. Run right face? Come on. It's fun. And it's the was the, the 1970 Olympics, you know? I mean, cool stuff. So here's a, here's a script. Dan, well, if you want the job, you'll have to resign as judge of recorder court and from the school board. Apparently he did both things. Holt Harris, I don't understand. Dan, it ain't got nothing to do with you, Welshman. This was his nickname for him. Harriman can't come into my county and pick one of my people without asking me. So if you take it, you're one of Harriman's people. You ain't one of my people anymore. Hull Harris turned down Governor Harriman then. The dashing jet-set millionaire and stuck with the crotchety old man with thick bifocals and ill-fitting out-of-date clothes who rarely left his house. So went another tutorial in Albany machine power.
Dan was a man of his word, though, and he kept it. A trait witnessed often by Erasmus. Or at least the people who recorded it. Maybe you don't see all the times he lied and burned people. Because in a town like Albany, in a small Albany, you know, like, someone can burn you and you will protect them your whole life. You'll not say a word against them. Because you know it's you'll be a social pariah. And I've actually seen something like that in action here in Albany the last 20 years. You know, I've worked with people. They get burned by people who serve in office right now. And they will not, you know, go to the paper with it. They won't, you know, badmouth them in public because they want a position later. They don't want to ruin their chance to get in on the action later, especially when, say, that person is mayor or council president or just whatever, or county judge or someone in the party infrastructure. But I, I will, well, we'll see when we get there. Of course, I don't present anything without evidence or sources, so not hearsay. But um, personally, just so you know, you can trust me. Like, I don't, if I'm going to seek public office in Albany, it's going to be on my own power uh, or independent um, political power and not through the Democratic Party machine or the Democratic Party, period. Dan was a man of his word, a trait witnessed often by Erasmus. Jake Herzog, whose father and uncle were important figures in the machine, was appointed by Dan as election commissioner in 1939 at the age of 28. As a reward for his loyalty, Dan met with Herzog before he went off with the Navy to fight in the Pacific in World War II. He was then injured in Okinawa. Dan asked, what do you want when you come back? Herzog replied, well, I want to be a judge. Dan said, you'll be a judge. After returning to Albany in the fall of 45 to recuperate from his wounds, Dan summoned Herzog to his camp in the Heldebergs. Herzog said he had forgotten Dan's pre-war promise, but he hadn't. When you went away to the service, you told me you wanted to be a judge. Well, I've got it all arranged. Truman will appoint Bucky Kemp to federal court. Burns will go to city court. And I'll make you police court judge. It was Dan's chessboard that he moved all the pieces at will. Yet with Dan's own inscrutable moral code... It was a political game with, with a heart and compassion. I have to say that with a chuckle. Erasmus conducted the 1946 swearing-in of his buddy Herzog, age 35. I didn't get a swelled head, Herzog said. Dan thought the world of my father, and he made me a judge to thank my dad. I said, no, that meritocracy is definitely real and not completely made up. Or is it only real in California? Make sure I have the right time. Yep, three minutes left. Um, so let's just recap. Yeah, because the next part it goes into is priest. So that's the home stretch. It kind of went all over the place. Uh, no clear kind of theme, but I think I'll go over that a bit more, you know, as I wrap up in part three. But it basically just goes over the, the web of relationships. Uh, the personal uh, history of Dan O'Connell and Corning. They kind of make up the, the dynamic duo of the top, you know, the two snake heads of the machine. But it also just goes into all the little brass tacks of how the machine works, that it works off of a little fear, a little intimidation, but also a lot of, a lot of just little carrots. You don't need the stick if you get enough carrots. And, you know, maybe you use the carrot a few times, the stick, and people are just so afraid of getting the stick again. You know, oh, is the, is the mayor going to call cops on me? Am I going to, like, get a knock? You know, am I going to get harassed? Am I going to get my taxes raised? Am I going to get a um, 
well, I, I would use the code enforcement, but code enforcement didn't exist then, or rather it, it wouldn't under these guys. Um, a lot like with a lot of city services and rights protections and all that kind of stuff. No, your rights were protected through the grace of these guys. The fl- you're the flock, they're the shepherds. Um, if you're a good Catholic, I guess that's the way you think. But uh, obviously, there's liberation theology and a lot of progressive Catholics. Um, but but it, it may it makes Albany a very conservative city, and and that's something that's just not I guess not well understood or reported or it's just it's not how we think of ourselves. We just don't. Um, let me conclude now with outro. This has been this week's program of of what's left in Albany. Please contact me or leave feedback, suggest topics, or join, or if you want to join me on the program, if you have a project to talk about. You can support the show with word of mouth, reviews of wherever you're listening to this, which could be on any podcast platform, uh, as well as any social media pl- plugging or sharing. Uh, I am a small operation, so every share has an impact. You can find this show on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, Type in three left show or what's left in Albany. Uh, I think I've been changing them all to what's left in Albany, but sometimes it'll be both. My email is still three lefts show at Gmail. That's with two S's, you know, the lefts and show. Support with dollars at Patreon or LibrePay. Just search for the show name. Also search the show name to find me and uh, on any podcast app like music apps like iTunes, Spotify, or the like. You can find a full archive and info at www.3lefts.news. So, uh, last, I want to wish you all well, encourage all listening to vote sometime every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany.
rich people and poor people.